So, first service, this Donna Evans comes walking by me, and, and she says, she goes, you need to smile. God made this day. And I said, God also gave me this cold. Okay, so, so this is, so seriously, I am, like, on Wednesday, I will be into this thing for three weeks. And, and I was talking to somebody last year, and they said they had it for five, and I was talking to one of my wife's friends who works at the hospital, and, and they said, uh, the real flu, she goes, if you don't have it for like 20 days, it's not the flu. And I'm like, I am just not happy. So I don't need to smile. No jokes today. We're just going to do this, and you're all going to be sad like me. <clears throat> just so you feel it. So you, feel like, uh, you guys have wanted a planting roots update. Uh, as Sarah was saying a little bit, planting roots was the thing that we went through as we tried to refocus all of ourselves on what God's calling us to and be as a church. To, and one of those things was that we are going to, we bought that field that's out there. We're going to build ourselves a permanent home. We were looking for, you know, six, seven years for a place to move to, couldn't find a place to do that. And God kind of led that land out there to us. And so we're going to be building kind of like these guys, hopefully faster, but, you know, but, or, hey, hey. But anyway, uh, and so some updates, when we did that, we we had this journey we went, went through, and we are officially, as of yesterday, what's April Fool's Day? Friday? As of Friday? Yeah, because all your stupid Facebook posts on Friday. Um, so as of Friday, we're 50% through the campaign. Uh, of the commitments that people gave for that, we have 39% of those in. But total planting roots giving, like people who didn't uh, make something during the journey and still give anyway, we're at a 45% total of the thing. So we're, we're pretty close. As I keep saying every month, the rest of you slackers get on the stick. <clears throat> and, and we'll keep going with that. And I was actually supposed to announce that Tupperware fundraiser that they're doing, but I tried to do it first service, and I felt like I was just going to offend somebody because I don't use Tupperware. And I'm like, I read BPA-free, and I'm like, that must be for your environmentalist people. BPA-free! I don't even know what it means. I, I can think of a bunch of analogies to go with it, but none of them are going to be good. So we're just going to leave it at that. If, if you, my, my wife is one of those people who... You buy, like, lunch meat, and it comes in a container. She's like, don't throw that away. I'm like, this is garbage. She's like, it's not. And so she washes it and puts, and puts like, leftovers in it and stuff. And then, and I don't, I don't mind, because I do take the leftovers, and I go, and I eat them, but then I throw the thing away. She's like, why'd you bring it home? And I said, because it was trash. And she said, it wasn't trash. It's a container. She saves every. So she is one of those Tupperware people, so. She might be buying something. I don't know. But then she won't let me use it. Like, the good ones, I don't get to use. I get to use the trash. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> All right, uh, last thing is that uh, our baptisms are just a couple weeks away. If you are interested in being baptized, we still have a meeting after every service today. If you want to know more about baptisms or what they mean or what uh, we are called to in that. Again, as I say, Jesus said a couple things very clearly that we were meant to do, and one of those is to be baptized. And so if you've never been, we would love to baptize you. Uh, at baptisms, everybody's invited. We all show up. We all eat. And someone tries to throw you in the pool, and you get to beat somebody up. It's wonderful, or not. So um, what we invite you all to do is we're doing this thing called a nacho bar this year. Uh, and so what we want you guys to do is if your last name, hold on, I got this, I got this. If your last name is A through L, you're going to bring some sort of cooked meat topping to go on top of the nachos. As I said, you should all go to El Toro and buy carne asada because it's amazing. <laughs> Uh, and then if your last name is M through R, uh, bring, it says finger-friendly desserts, cookies, 
Okay? I don't know why they don't say cookies, but bring lots of cookies, enough for a couple dozen people. You could also bring those zingers, because those are friendly, the ones that are like, they still make zingers? Those raspberry ones? Oh, man, they taste like a lava flow. (laughs) Never mind. If your last name is S through Z, uh, bring beans and salsa. So, again, as I said last week, you get the sneaky one, so bring that. It's, it's great. And, again, if you, if you haven't been baptized, we'd love to baptize you. You are all invited. We'd love to have every single one of you there. There's enough room. Don't worry about it. We'd love to have you all there. Um, if you are newer to Element, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can have one and take it home with you. If you don't have one at all, you can actually just take one. That's what they're there for. Um, we have sermon notes around the room. I got so many things up here. Like, I have this whole little Tupperware thing. It's going to drive me nuts. So, there's, in the community outside the room, there are sermon notes. They look like this. On the inside, there's some notes that go deeper into what we're talking about, as well as some questions. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. You click on Events in Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes versus questions. All that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. <clears throat> and I have been sick for three weeks. Won't you stand with me? Read into God's word. We'll get started. i got to wipe my nose in the middle of the message. I'm really sorry. I'll probably just use my hand and gross you out, but whatever. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 23. It says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would teach us how to be a people who go to our friends when certain things happen, and we would explain what you are doing and what has happened in a way that we encourage one another to speak of the gospel and the good news of what you have done that we would live lives that honor you and that you are fully lifted up in all that we do, that our eyes would get off of ourselves and they would get on who you are because you are the great God who has saved us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in our series on the book of Acts. Well, the first half of the book of Acts anyway. This is week 11 and we're still not even a third of the way through. Go us. Uh, We're looking at the amazing nature today of community and what Jesus calls his church into. And as we go through Acts, we want you to be able to come away with a few things. And one of those is that most of you will probably not spend the rest of your life in Element. Some of you will. We're sorry. (laughs) You will die here, okay? But the rest of us, not so much. Uh, But if and when you move out of Santa Maria or maybe something happens here where you get all irritated at us and you find another church, we want to look at some things where when you go somewhere else, you would consider before you make another place your permanent home. And by giving you these things, we're not saying Element does these things perfectly or even well at times, but we believe these are things that churches should be striving for. And your sermon notes are on the left side. We're starting to list the things out that we've actually covered. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. What has happened so far when we get to the place where we are is that Peter and John have gone to the temple. They're going into worship. And when we say worship, we do not mean music. What we mean is they're going into the temple. They're going to pray. They're going to read the scriptures. The scriptures are going to be taught to them. They're going to sing some songs, but they're also going to fellowship and lift up one another. It's a great example to all of us about what worship means. On the way in, they see a man crippled, and he's begging for money. Upon determining that his need was real, Peter reaches down, and he heals this guy in the name of Jesus. This makes the religious people, the ones who rule the temple, kind of go a little bit crazy and they get angry because they can't heal people and they don't like other people healing people that said that they couldn't really do it and they got really mad and they killed Jesus and Jesus rose from the grave and that makes them really mad as well. Because Jesus ascended into heaven, they can't really go and arrest him. So they go out and they arrest Peter and John for healing someone and preaching in the name of Jesus. The chief priests, after they talk to Peter and John, they can't get them to start to shut up about who Jesus is. 
thousands at this point are coming to believe in Jesus. So the chief priests eventually say, just please stop talking about Jesus. And they threaten them and they let Peter and John go. This is what happens after they let Peter and John go. Acts 4, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they, that's their friends and their community, heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, and don't stop, don't keep reading right there, kind of stop right there, what do you think their friends said? If they were like us, we would say, oh God, why is it so hard? Oh, if you really loved us, we wouldn't get arrested. Oh, you should show up your name and write your name in the sky, and that way I don't have to talk about you to anybody. Everybody would just know. Please bless us with stuff and make us happy. That's what we would say, right? That's not what they said. These guys know hardship and trial, that it it can and does come into our lives. They encourage one another by saying this, Sovereign Lord, so they start to pray, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's that? That's Jesus. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So that's everybody, okay? That's everybody lumped together. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happened? They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The Spirit comes. They continue to be God's witnesses in the world. Persecution. It doesn't make them stop. It doesn't make them shy away. Their encouragement of one another made them more bold. Made them more bold. They come together to strengthen each other. They have a common Lord to worship. They have a common message to proclaim. They have a common love for each other. They encourage one another. Don't give up. This is to remind us that the church is not a building. It's not a place you go. The church is a community of people who gather, who love Jesus and encourage one another. Now, picture in your mind like the skinniest person you know. I hope it's not me, right? Now, picture in your mind alongside of that like the biggest person you know. And I know you're thinking, I hope that's not me, right? Somewhere in the middle of that is like the the healthy place with the right food, you know, the right exercise. There's that that healthy place. That's what the body of Christ is meant to be, people who function in that healthy place. One writer says this, as the body is nourished by food, so the soul is nourished by people. The church is meant to be these people nourished by one another. I mean, we in our lives should be shaped first and foremost by Jesus. But we are shaped almost more than anything else by the people that God places around us. And if you have friends and they're like into booty calls and ugly Facebook girl photos and things like that, you know, and and buying things, you will eventually be into those things too. If your friends love Jesus and encourage you to get your eyes off of yourself and on to him, you'll begin to live that way too. The question becomes, who do you surround yourself with? Who do you allow to speak truth into your life? God uses people to form other people. This is why what happens between you and somebody else is never merely human-to-human interaction. It is God working in between people. Proverbs uh, 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. In the church, we have a fancy phrase for this. We call it fellowship. And I know when you say fellowship, some people's minds just kind of 
freak out and you go into cold sweats and it makes you think of like basements and punch and really awkward conversation and things like that. Fellowship is meant to be the word for like the, the, the flow of life that goes between God's people and between God and us and we're not supposed to be able to live without it. All the way back when we went through the book of Genesis, I talked to you about this journal. It's called the Journal of Happiness Studies. And so what they do is they publish these studies using uh, these tools of research about what makes human life joyful and connect. And so they look at all these different things that distinguish people who are content and joyful from those who aren't. And one factor consistently separates those two groups. And it is not how much money you make. It's not your health. It's not your security. It's not your attractiveness. It's not your IQ. It's not how your butt looks in those jeans. It's not your career success. What distinguishes consistently joyful and content people from less joyful people is the presence of rich, deep, joy-producing, life-changing, meaningful relationships. That's what they came to. And it's, and it's not a Christian study, okay? Uh, Robert Putnam wrote this book, and he says, The single most common finding from half a century's research on life satisfaction, not only from the U.S., but around the world, is that happiness is best predicted by the breadth and depth of one's social connections. See, connectedness is not the same thing as knowing lots of people. You can have 500 Facebook friends, but not really have any real friends. Real friends are people who will laugh with you and cry with you and encourage you and actually rebuke you to your face. In Romans chapter 12, Paul encourages believers how to live with other believers and those who don't even believe. In Romans 12, 15, he says, you rejoice with those who rejoice. You weep with those who weep. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, John speaks about love, connection, other people, living the life Jesus calls us to. And he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does, does not love abides in death. If we are a people who live in isolation from other people, you are more likely to give in to temptation, discouragement, probably listen to country music because it's all like depressing anyway. right? We're more likely to become self-absorbed, spend money in selfish ways. And not only do we suffer, but what happens is we then stop giving to other people what God calls us to give to them because we're supposed to bless one another. If we live in isolation, we're not blessing one another. Proverbs chapter 1 or 18 verse 1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Eugene Peterson paraphrased this as, Loners who care only for themselves spit on the common good. It's kind of an interesting way to, to do that. We, we are designed to come alive through connection. We're to encourage one another to be witnesses, to go out and speak of the gospel. And that does not mean you have to be more of an extrovert. Like some of the shyest people I know have the deepest connections and speak about Jesus better than almost anybody else that I know. What we have to understand is love is typically something that we do. When you read through the scriptures, when it talks about love and God loving us, it doesn't always mean that God looks at us and is like, oh, yeah, my people are such knuckleheads. Oh, it brings such joy to my heart. No, it says Romans 5, 8, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's God's love. It is action-oriented. It seeks out his lost and wayward children. And we as a people are meant to be servants of one another. It's not, love isn't always something you feel. It's something that you do. And this connection becomes marked by servanthood, which is what we'll kind of talk about next week a little bit. Romans 13, verse 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Mother Teresa used to say, If you can't do great things, do little things with great love. If you can't do them with great love, do them with a little love. If you can't do them with a little love, do them anyway. All right? Two of you get that, whatever. But, but that's community, that's love, it's serving one another. Our selfishness, our ego, our pride causes the death of relationships. But with God, all things are new, and he encourages us to encourage one another. 
because of the encouragement that happened in the early church, what happens is they continue to preach the gospel. They continue to go out and speak God's words in very hard times. You see that in Acts 4, but that's actually a pattern that happens throughout the book of Acts and also throughout church history. It's a pattern Tim Keller likes to call restoration, renewal, and revival. And what means that happens is first there's like a crisis of some sort. Okay, so in Acts chapter 4, two weeks ago we looked at this, they are persecuted, they're arrested, they're, they're brought in, so there's persecution from the outside of some sort. So there's this crisis. And then what happens in response to that is God's people, they get together and they pray and they encourage one another in community. They extraordinarily find a way that they seek God together. And then what happens is there, there is a visitation of the power of God comes and God does something amazing. God descends in power to do something. And don't get all weird on me when I say that just because some religious traditions don't know what to do with God showing up and doing something amazing. But fourth in that, the people are so transformed that their faces are then turned outward and they begin to live on mission, preaching and teaching the gospel. They begin to make an impact on the world. There's a crisis, the seeking of God, and there's the power of God, and then there's this transformed community whose faces get turned outward to begin to live on mission in the world around them. They have a world impact. Acts 4.4 tells you 5,000 people believed in Jesus because of what was happening. And we go back to Acts chapter 2. The same thing happens as well. There's a crisis in Acts chapter 2. What happens in Acts chapter 2? Jesus ascended. He's no longer there with the disciples. Like, what are we going to do? They get together and they start to pray in this upper room. They seek God together in community, together encouraging one another to seek God in an extraordinary way. And then God comes in power. In this case, there is rushing, mighty wind, tongues of fire on their heads. I mean, that's a visitation. That's like, the, if it happened in here, I'd be like, this is crazy. Right? But it happens there. And again, too many people mistake that word visitation for something wild and crazy. And it's a mistake to say it's got to happen the same way every time. Because it doesn't happen the same way every time. From Acts 2 to Acts chapter 4, it doesn't happen the exact same way. So we can't say it happens the same way every time. But God's power comes. And then lastly, there's a transformed community that becomes so attractive. I think Keller calls it cosmically potent that it begins to have this impact on the world. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, they go out, Peter preaches, and 3,000 people are converted in one day. That's not a bad day. (laughs) There are are 120 people the day before. The next day, there are 3,120. And you have this crisis-seeking visitation world impact. That's the cycle. And there are cycles like this that have actually happened throughout history, the history of the church. Community comings together over a traumatic event, and God does amazing things. I mean, let's think about America. America! Okay, America. You know, you have this thing called the Great Awakening that took place in the 1720s. In the 1720s, the church was dead. I mean, sometimes we think, oh, the church is dead in America today. In America today, 40 to 50% of people will go to church regularly or semi-regularly. So there's, there's still a little bit of that. And before 1720s, 10% 10% of people in America went to church. Okay, that, that's not much. I know if you go to some college professors and tell you, oh, the church was all the problems. Nobody was there. It wasn't the church's fault. Okay, so just, they're dumb. Anyway, so along comes this guy. Uh, this guy's name is Cotton Mather. I know, sounds, sounds like an old revival preacher, right? Cotton Mather, woo! He's actually a New England Congregationalist minister. And he organizes the church community together to start to pray. He dies in 1727, but in 1727, this revival breaks out. And it actually happens on both sides of the Atlantic, this outpouring of the Spirit of God. So much so that historians today really can't even figure out how it happened. Literally crowds, thousands upon thousands of people who showed no interest in Jesus or Christianity began to flock into the church. 
people, people began to reach out to them and then bring them in. People were converted in droves. During the Great Awakening, most churches had 20, 10 to 20 converts a day averaged out over three years. I mean, that's, I, I'm not a math guy, but that's a lot of people. Okay, that, that, that's a lot of people. You fast forward to 1855 in London, the same thing. Churches are kind of dead. There's this big Baptist chapel called New Park Street Chapel that seated 1,500 people. Less than 150 people showed up weekly to their services. They end up calling this 19-year-old guy to come preach at the church who had never even finished high school. His name is Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is probably one of the greatest preachers in, in the history of the church. And so what does Charles Spurgeon do when he gets there? He gets the, he sees the crisis, he gets the community together, and he says, we need to start praying for God to show up and God to do something. And that's what they do, consistently and constantly. He encourages them as a community to start to pray together and seek God together. There are 150 people when he shows up. A year later, there are 3,000 people coming. He baptized 300 converts that year. Uh, while they're building a new building so they can all fit into it, they go to, they go to meet at Surrey Music Hall, seats 10,000 people. You know what happens? 10,000 people showed up. Like, oh my goodness. They decided at one point to go to the Crystal Palace, which seated 27,000 people. This is the 1800s people, okay? 27,000 people show up. She's like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. In the year 1859, a revival breaks out across the world here. Not only was this happening in Spurgeon's church, but a group of six businessmen decide to get together at this place called Fulton Street. They start praying you know, together, encouraging one another, God, please come and do something new. They started September 1858. A year later, there are 10,000 businessmen praying every noon for God to come in power and do something new. And I think they realized God had come in power and done something new. What is interesting is that all the men and women who would lead the church for the next 40 years were converted in that year, 1859. 1859. And this type of thing has happened in Korea. It's happened in China. It's happened in Ireland. You know, with those people who are like all moody and burn too easy and drink too much? Those people, you know? In the 1860s, hey, I'm Irish, I can say it, okay. In the 1860s, one-third of all the population of Northern Ireland was actually converted and brought into the church. Two million new people joined churches in the northeast United States between 1858 and 1859. Back in the Great Awakening in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book about this. He calls it, he, he just can't make a short title. He calls it this, a humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of God's people in extraordinary prayer. That's the name of the book, right? But, but what, what, what the title is is that God's people come together, encourage one another, and pray for God to come and do something new. I mean, this is what he saw in the 1720s, 30s, and 40s. Extraordinary seeking of God. God comes in power. The church is then sent out to do some amazing things. Now, a lot of people get confused how Christians pray. Because we say things like, well, God is omnipresent, right? God's omni. He's, that means he's everywhere all the time. No matter where you go, God's there. And yet we, we pray and we invite him into certain places. So what does that mean? Well, there are essentially three type of theologies in the world. There's Western theology. I don't mean us since we're a Western nation. I mean old Western theologies like, like Norse gods and Greek gods and Roman gods. You know, Marvel movies. Okay, that kind of thing. Uh, th- these are personal gods, but they're not infinite. It's like Zeus, Apollo, Thor, Loki, things like that. They're personal, not infinite. They do stupid things. They feel regret and bad form. Personal, not infinite. Then you have what's called Eastern theology. Eastern theology is like Buddhism and things like that, where God is infinite, but God's not personal. God is a force. God is everywhere, but you don't really talk to God because God doesn't talk to you. He's just kind of this force that's out there. You you can become conscious of him. You might be able to tap into his power, but even using the word him isn't really right. He's infinite but not personal. When God reveals himself, God shows that he is actually personal and infinite. 
He is personal. You, you can talk to him. He can talk to you. You can know him. He can know you. He, you can speak to him. He can speak to you. But God is also infinite. In an Eastern understanding you know, of God, there really is no obedience because there's no personal dealing. In a Western understanding of God, God is someone you have to almost manipulate. He's like your boss and you want a day off. <laughs> oh, I'm so sick. Can I have a day off? That kind of thing. You've got to kind of manipulate him. Like He might be a good guy, but you've got to give him what he wants. The Christian understanding is that God is good and holy and righteous and pure, and God is infinite, but God is also personal. So what that means is that God is everywhere, but there's another sense of his presence that is a relational presence. It's a personal presence. Like you and I today, we're in this room together. We are in each other's presence. That may not always be a good thing, right? But we're in each other's presence. I could get you sick, right? But if you came up after service and we talked one-on-one, we are now in a more personal way in each other's presence. And that's kind of what we pray for. Like in, in the book of Jonah, like you have Jonah and God says, go preach in Nineveh. And Jonah's like, I don't want to go to Nineveh. And he goes, run the other way. Jonah is a Jew. He knows he can't run from the omnipresence of God. What Jonah is running from is from the personal presence of God, where God comes in a really real way and says, this is what I want you to do. That's what he runs away from. You have to understand that this, that this visitation that, that Peter prayed for and the apostles prayed for, that Cotton Mather prayed for, that the Koreans prayed for, that Spurgeon prayed for, that this true community should pray for that encourages one another is a visitation of the real felt presence of God in our midst. We should pray that God would come down into our lives for the purpose of teaching us to live on mission. That's a theology of renewal, visitation, and revival. Keller says this, A revival is a work of God in which the church is both beautified and empowered because the normal operations of the Holy Spirit, which are conviction of sin, enjoyment of grace, and access to the presence of God are intensified. Now, you go to some churches and you talk about revival and they say things like, we don't need a revival, get out of here, weirdo, you know, that kind of thing. Some churches see revival as like a thing you do, like you put a sign out front, revival is from September 29th to October 8th, 7.30 to 9.30 every night. Charles Spurgeon would laugh at that because he would say there is no way we get to decide that something only God can decide to do, especially two hours a night for a week and a half. That's, that's not how it worked. Uh, revival is not a packed out church. It is not orchestrated by us. Some people believe that revival is when extraordinary things by the Holy Spirit happen. People are healed. People get words from the Lord. And the problem is that biblically and historically, you can't make that stick. Sometimes that happens. It does. But not every single time. Sometimes revival have been miracles. Sometimes they haven't. George Whitfield, probably one of the greatest preachers America has ever known, was one of the ministers who has seen 10, 20, 30 people converted every single day, whole communities transformed. There's a little group called the Federal Society, and they wrote him a letter. This is what they said. We're praying for you. We don't believe the power of God has really fallen on you, and you haven't really experienced revival because there are no miracles happening in your ministry. Really? 10, 20, 30 people a day believe in Jesus, and that's not a miracle. So Whitfield very humble guy, writes this back. So he says, But alas, what need is there of miracles such as healing sick bodies and restoring sight to blind eyes when we see greater miracles every day done by the power of God's word? Do not the spiritually blind now see, not the spiritually dead now raised, and the leprous souls now cleansed, and have not the poor the gospel preached unto them? And if we have the thing already, which such miracles were only intended to introduce, why should we tempt God in requiring further signs? He says the whole point of miracles was to get people to believe the gospel. And if people are believing the gospel, what more do we need? Not that God can't do more or anything like that, but the point is to get people to believe the gospel. 
See, what we have to understand is the essence of God doing new things and revival and how we encourage one another is not these extraordinary operations of the Holy Spirit, but ordinary operations of the Spirit. What are the ordinary operations of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, the joy that we have, how we encourage one another, the reality of God being real to us, the conviction of sin, the ordinary things the Spirit does, where he makes God so real to us that we live in gospel community with each other. Keller gives three marks of revival. He says, number one, there's an outpouring of God's Spirit on believers. And that simply means when I say that, that the presence of God is among believers in such a way that we find Jesus more real to us than ever, that he becomes more important to us than nearness and the reality of him than really anything else in our lives. Secondly, as a result of the outpouring of God's Spirit, the people of God are attracted, people of the world are attracted to and sought out by believers. Like people who don't even know what's going on with Jesus say, I don't know what's going on there, but something's going on. Those people love in a way that's simply amazing. You know, there's a community centered on Jesus where believers are burdened to pray for and seek out other people. They encourage one another to be witnesses. And thirdly, there's an impact on the community and society that surrounds the church. When people are really changed, it is not a private thing. It simply goes out. Wherever there has been real revival, there are massive social changes. There are. In the Great Awakening in England in the 1720s, 30s, and 40s, historians will say it's one of the main reasons why England did not have a bloody revolution at the end of the century the way that France did. Because masses of the poor were won to Christ, a lot of their bitterness was taken away, and the church began to reach out and help with race relations and political relations. Imagine that. Imagine the church being part of the solution and not part of the problem. It would be amazing. In our country, almost all the original colleges and universities, um, most of the hospitals and orphanages were all started by Christians. In countries and villages where the gospel is spread through, there are massive changes in crime levels. There are massive changes in attitudes and relationships between management and labor. There are are social healing within families. Why? Because believers are meant to encourage one another to live out the reality of the gospel in our lives. As I will tell you, if we are to have any hope for our country and our world to heal, it will be with a revived focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will not be high-fiving your friends if your candidate for president wins. Because I'll tell you, whoever wins, we're all just screwed this time, okay? It's just what it is. got to understand that living the gospel is it's this constant engagement with one another to proclaim the gospel and redemption in all things. We preach Jesus. We don't pre- At Element, we will never hand out to you a voting guide because if I get any chance to preach to you, I'm going to tell you about Jesus, not candidates, because Jesus is the one who will solve the problems, not who, whoever's like running for whatever office. Jesus is the one who will solve it, and his people living in, on mission with and for him. I mean, we must be a people who invite each other to revive community that encourages one another to live the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the one who saves. It is him who saves. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. He rose from the grave to give us new life to make all things new. John 13, 35 says, Jesus says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. If you love one another. If you encourage one another enough to live the gospel of Jesus Christ out in your lives, that's how the world changes. And it's so easy to get distracted. It is so easy to get our eyes on this thing or that thing, especially when everybody's posting all this crazy stuff online all the time about all these things. Guys, the world will change when God's people preach and live out the gospel as he called us to. And that's what we must encourage one another to do and be. 
of people who live out the gospel. This is one of the reasons we as people talk about communion every single week. You break that cracker like his body is broken for us. Jesus' body was broken because of our sin. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. represents his blood that was shed for you and me. That takes away our sin. That washes it away. Jesus rises from the grave. So we get to live and rise in, in new life. Communion is the place where you lay down all of the aspirations. You hope for some person. And you simply lay your hope in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, when we talk about things like, you know, pray for a visitation from God or, or pray that God becomes real or seek God, it's not, it's not that you don't already know him and have a relationship with him. It's that we, we seek him in more and more ways in every part of our life. So he comes into all the places that we're trying to hold back from him, and we truly begin to live the gospel of Jesus Christ in each other's lives. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion and be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you need prayer... I mean, maybe you're in a place where you, your hope is in a person, and it's not in Jesus. They would love to pray with you about that. You know, maybe you have someone in your life that you really care for, and they're just kind of running the wrong direction, and you want to pray. They would love to pray. Anything you want, they would love to pray with you. But today, we'd like to have a more focused thing on living out the gospel and encouraging one another. We all need to be a people daily who ask God to do something new in an extraordinary way. Not through Aaron or Michelle or one of the people on stage. We want to ask God to do that through us. This is why God sends us out into the world to be his people, to be his hands and feet, so everyone would know who Jesus is and what he has done and how he saves. There's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back when we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is just part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done. There's some awesome cookies in the back. So I didn't have any, but I had someone take some and put some in the freezer for me. So you don't know that, so don't go steal my cookies. Um, but grab something to eat, meet some other people, maybe invite somebody out to lunch or dinner this week and kind of talk through some of these things. You know, what, what do you see as the solution to the world's problems? I mean, if it's anything other than people living out the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it's the wrong answer because that's, that's how the world is saved. That's how the world is changed. God's people living on mission. And maybe you could pray for one another, encourage one another to begin to live that out, where we become less judgmental of people's politics and more inviting into people to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because your arguments are not going to change people. Jesus is going to change people. And so you lay everything in his hands, and when you have the chance to speak, that's what you speak about, the goodness and the grace of God, because he is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would remind us to be a people who seek you in real and true ways, that we would honor you by how we speak about you. Father, as we seek you, we know that you are the one who has sought us and the one who has saved us. But I ask that in our seeking, it be the reminder of laying down our hearts, laying down our wants, so our desires become your desires. And in a very real way, our heart would beat in time with yours. That you would teach us to be a community that prays, that lifts you up. That we would begin to encourage one another to understand, know, and live in the gospel. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit 
in whatever way you see fit. And that we as your people would live in that strength that you provide. And you would revive us even as you send us out to be a revival and change agent in the world. And that all that we do would honor you as our great God who has revived our hearts and our souls and saved us. Teach us to honor and love and glorify you in all things. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.